Jesus teaches the crowd. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecuted you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. For us this morning, I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures. There's one underneath the seat in front of you. You can turn to page 858 in that copy, and you'll find yourself at Matthew chapter 5. Well, friends, a bit of a confession this morning. My original intention in prepping this series was that I would cover the Beatitudes in one sermon. But as I prepped that first sermon, I decided to divide it up into two. And as I wrote the second sermon, I knew we were going to need three. And guess what? Today is that third sermon. And as I was writing this, it became apparent to me that we needed to slow down to cover the themes of these last two Beatitudes in two weeks. So yes, that is four sermons on the Beatitudes. This week we will look at the abnormal norm of peacemaking, and next week the abnormal norm of persecution. Before we dive into peacemaking, let's remember what these norms are. These are not tasks to check off in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, into the upside-down kingdom. Rather, they are markers of those who are already in the kingdom. We've described them as covenantal norms. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is the inaugurator of the new covenant that God makes with man, a covenant in which God promises to be our God and in which God gives us a pliable heart in place of our obstinate, stubborn, rebellious heart. And he promises to forgive our sin and to give us his spirit. So they're covenantal norms. And to put it another way, these are beatitudes that describe what the disciple of Jesus looks like. Imperfectly, yes, but truly. So these abnormal norms are not just covenantal norms, they are current norms. So if you profess to be a follower of Jesus, these norms should be progressively evident in your life. And if they aren't, we ought to ask the question, why not? Could it be that we've embraced a form of cultural Christianity, a form of godliness, while denying its power? A cultural Christianity that doesn't get past behavior modification, that doesn't actually get to the heart 
because it doesn't actually include the gospel. It doesn't center us on what Jesus has done for us, but rather focuses on what we might do for God. Now, those are questions that you and I ought to wrestle with before God. These are covenantal norms, they're current norms, and third, they're countercultural norms. We've covered the first six of these Beatitudes, now for the seventh. But before we read it and dive into it, Jesus, as he says this, is assuming at least three things. First, Jesus is assuming that conflict will continue for a time, even though he's already arrived. Even though he's come as the anointed Messiah, he assumes conflict will continue. In fact, he'll say later in his ministry, he did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Second, Jesus assumes that his disciples will not be immune to conflict. And third, Jesus assumes that his disciples will healthily engage in conflict. So with those three assumptions, let's listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, we've talked at length about how countercultural these statements are. To highlight just how countercultural this particular one is, let's note what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, Blessed are the peace destroyers. Let's be honest, being a peace destroyer is so much easier than being what Jesus actually said. Just be a Christian cannibal, and you can be a peace destroyer. Feed on the offenses of others. Bite and devour those around you, either to their faces or behind their backs. Grow your superiority complex in, superiority complex in pride. After all, aren't you so glad that you're not like so-and-so? It's easy to be a peace destroyer. Seek to be right all the time, to have the last word in any argument. Be proud, be unbelieving, be self-righteous and critical of others. But listen to Jesus. You won't find peace destroyers in the upside-down kingdom. They won't be called sons of God. Jesus does not say, blessed are the peaceful. Some people are evidently peaceful people. Nothing seems to rile them. Nothing gets under their skin. But let's be honest, peacefulness can rise from a variety of sources outside of the power of God within you. Your poised calm can be based upon security in anything but Christ. It can be based on your physical strength or your intellect, your financial wealth or your experience, or maybe it's just a facet of your personality. You're just implacably calm. Maybe you're just easygoing or lacking ambition or passive or apathetic. All of these can be misinterpreted as peaceful. 
But Jesus is not advocating certain personality types over others. He's not advocating for merely peaceful followers. Jesus also does not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Peacekeepers know how to dodge conflict. They know how to avoid the hard conversation. How to placate two different people with verbal dexterity and bribes or flattery. In that sense, there are some excellent UN peacekeeping forces among us. Do whatever it takes to keep two warring parties with different goals and agendas from, well, warring, even if underlying issues aren't addressed. But Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. And Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peace fakers. Peace fakers can thrive in a church habitat. In fact, it might be their most natural habitat. Peace fakers communicate everything is always good all the time. They have no issues with anybody ever. They get along to get along. Unfortunately, peace fakers are often gossips as well. Whether inside or outside of the church, gossips wear the guise of, my life and relationships are all good, while passing along the latest juicy tidbits about how so-and-so's life and relationships are not all good. Sometimes peace fakers host what they call discernment blogs. wonder if you've ever read any of those. These individuals have figured out how to gain platform and capital by passing along gossip and slander aimed at other Christian leaders and organizations. Essentially, they tell their leaders, I will, or their readers, I will lead you into peace. You can trust me, but you can't trust anybody else but me to tell you who you should trust. The peace destroyers, the peaceful, the peacekeepers, the peace fakers. Friends, these are not the norms Jesus is calling you to embrace. However popular they may be in a religious or irreligious culture. Jesus says that one of the distinguishing norms of the upside down kingdom is peace making. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus is claiming that to make peace between unreconciled peoples is divine gospel work. Peacemaking is divine gospel work. If you're taking notes, you could write that down as our first main point. Peacemaking is divine gospel work. But how so? Well, in these four ways. Number one, God the Father initiates peace between God and man through the gospel. Jesus knows this. He's part of this whole conspiracy to reconcile God and man. Our Heavenly Father is called the God of peace, Hebrews 13, 20, because he makes peace. Number two, this is divine gospel work because God the Son secures a costly peace between God and man through the gospel. A cost that he ultimately 
will pay himself and absorb in his own flesh. And so the apostles of Jesus would use this exact same word to describe the work of God the Father and God the Son jointly in this grand scheme of salvation. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in the Son, Jesus, and through the Son to reconcile everything to himself, the Father. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the God-man, the ultimate peacemaker who brings a true and lasting, yes, costly peace between seemingly irreconcilable parties, God and man. But number three, this is divine gospel work because God the Spirit creates peace between irreconcilable humans through the gospel. You see, the Spirit reconciled the Gentiles. If you're not a Jewish person, you are in that category, the Gentiles. The Spirit reconciled the Gentiles who were hated by the Jewish people with the Jewish people who were despised by the Gentiles, uniting them in Jesus. That's the baptism of the Spirit at salvation. We have been united into Christ, into one body. This is the argument Paul makes in Ephesians 2. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, one. And he tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. So that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Why did he do this? He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Peacemaking is divine gospel work. Number four, because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit entrust to the children of God the ministry of making peace. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And now he knows he has to clarify that. So he says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us Therefore, 
we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So what's the point? Peacemaking is divine gospel work. John Stott comments on our text, It is the devil who is a troublemaker. It is God who loves reconciliation. And who now, through his children, as formerly through his only begotten son, is bent on making peace. No wonder Jesus then says, Blessed are the peacemakers for what? They will be called the sons of God. God is in the business of peacemaking. It's what he does. Like father, like son, capital S, Jesus Christ. And like his adopted sons and daughters. Well, peacemaking comes in different forms. So if you're taking notes, number one, peacemaking is a divine work. Number two, peacemaking is a difficult work. In fact, the word make peace, there's a root there, the word to make, and it carries the ideal of applying skill to something in order to create something. And peacemaking is difficult work. And we're not always successful at it. In fact, some of you have in your mind right now a situation in which you attempted to make peace and it was weaponized against you and you bear the pain and trauma of that even as we talk about making peace. Peacemaking is difficult. It comes in different forms. Certainly it comes in the form of evangelism. We open our mouths to tell our neighbors and our friends that while they are currently at war in rebellion with God, God himself has made a way for them to be reconciled to him through the willing death of Jesus, the Son of God. That's peacemaking. Evangelism is, at its core, peacemaking. But it also comes in the form of seeking reconciliation with those who have hurt us or with those whom we have hurt or between those who in our lives are at odds with each other. And so it's no wonder that the New Testament writers pick up this theme of peacemaking. 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, God has called you to live in peace. 1 Peter three ten, the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him seek peace and pursue it. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with everyone. Romans 12, 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But there's a cost to making peace. It's difficult. Ironically, peacemaking often means actually fighting for peace. Entering hard conversations with hard people in hard places. After all, Jesus secured peace for us through the struggle of death and suffering, ultimately securing it at the cost of his own life. 
As we share the gospel, we will experience the pain of rejection and of cultural diminishment. The sort of cultural diminishment that looks at you with the question in in his or her eyes, I can't believe you actually believe that. When we've been wronged and seek reconciliation, we'll experience the pain of that hurt all over again. Or the pain of calling the attention of a friend or fellow life group member to their sin. And if they don't repent, there can be the linger of pain, lingering pain of living with that wrong unrighted. Or if you've been wronged and the offender comes seeking reconciliation, to be a peacemaker, you'll need to embrace the pain of forgiveness. And there is pain in forgiveness. That's part of what forgiveness is. It's absorbing the hurt and the liability that the other person caused you. It's releasing them from that and absorbing it in yourself. The pain of forgiving the sin debt against you. The pain of letting your desire for justice and an eye for an eye fall upon rather the righteous Christ in order to make peace with your brother and sister. Now hear me clearly. In the case of crimes, criminal justice should be sought out. That's part of seeking righteousness. But even in the justice process, Forgiveness can be offered if there is repentance. But in any situation of wrongdoing, there will be pain in that forgiveness. And when you have been doing the wrong, there will be the pain of accepting rebuke, of receiving it humbly, of apologizing in repentance. And whether those parties be a strange family or people groups who have history of grievances between them, the work of peacemaking is painful. Pastor John Stott again. We may not be personally involved in a dispute, but may find ourselves struggling to reconcile to each other two people or groups who are estranged, estranged and at variance with what each other. In this case, there will be the pain of listening, of ridding ourselves of prejudice, of striving sympathetically to understand both the opposing points of view and of risking misunderstanding, ingratitude, or even failure. And again, some in this room have wounds from such peacemaking attempts. Wounds of misunderstanding, of failure, failure in making a meaningful peace. The wounds of ingratitude of others aimed at you. And if that's you, perhaps you have vowed to never attempt it again. It's just safer that way, right? Why risk it? But friend, hear the words of Jesus to you. Blessed are you, even in your current pain, peacemaker, for you will be called the sons of God. Such work is good work. It's hard work. It's beautiful work. It's divine work. It's God-honoring, God-imaging work. And it is difficult work. Number three, if you're taking notes, it's divine work, difficult work. Number three, it's discipleship work. It's discipleship work. You and I can grow in our skill as peacemakers. Because we have the spirit within us if you're a child of God. 
God has given you himself to indwell you, to enable us to engage in this countercultural, otherworldly, supernatural activity of bringing peace. So practically speaking, if you want to lean into this norm of peacemaking, here are some tips. Some tips on one hand and a resource on the other. The tips come from Jack Miller, a pastor who died but for many years walked people more deeply into the depths of the gospel. And he described peacemaking as a part of spiritual warfare. Ironic. Peacemaking, spiritual warfare. It's a willingness to engage in conflict and tension the right way in order to see peace made. So the seven tips, suggestions I'm going to give to you are taken directly from a lecture that Pastor Jack Miller gave. If you would be a peacemaker, number one, desire God's glory more than your own vindication. Peacemaking is about glorifying God by imaging Him in your peacemaking attempts. So that means dying to self, dying to defensiveness, dying to self-justification. And it means living as if from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Book of Romans. Tip number two. Mount a spirit-empowered love offensive. I love that language. Spiritual warfare. Love offensive. Go on the offensive. Not with your tongue casting slander and gossip. But in love. Against the other party. Not just in words, but in deeds. Galatians 5.13. For in Christ Jesus, what matters is faith working itself out through love. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But... If you bite and devour one another, watch out, you'll be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, Spirit-empowered love, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. So that's number two. Tip number three, win the person, not the point. Win the person, not the point. First Corinthians chapter 12. Peacemaking isn't equal to persuasion. Nor is peacemaking about winning a fight. It's about actually making peace. Paul says, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So what is love? Well, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Number three, win the person, not the point. Number four, deal openly with differences without judging attitudes. 
often the attitude we find ourselves judging in another person is actually the Spirit of God holding up a mirror in front of us to see ourselves as we actually are, not as we imagine ourselves to be. James 4, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. That's a pretty blanket statement. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Number five, deal with issues, not personalities. Address the issue involved, not the personalities involved. So ask the question, how can you make common cause toward the issue to be addressed rather than focusing on the other person's posture or their response or their personality? Number six, ask questions rather than making accusations. A question demonstrates curiosity and interest in understanding the situation from another's point of view. An accusation is always built upon our assumptions, how I think, how I view the world based upon my experiences. And those assumptions will almost never be in line with how another person thinks or views the world based on their experiences. So we can grow in this skill of asking questions in order to be better peacemakers. And number seven, refuse to gossip. Now here's the reality. Many of us are at Sojourn because we love the culture of Sojourn. There's a vibe here that we enjoy and we appreciate. There's something that feels unique. Friends, do you know the quickest way for us to destroy that culture? Gossip. Like, without question. We can destroy this culture in 12 hours. Just start wagging our tongues. Just start biting and devouring one another. It really is that simple. But let's refuse to gossip. Let's guard this culture. Learn to communicate openly and directly with a person in question. In other words, friends, have the conversation. And not with the people who aren't involved. If you feel like there's something between you and another person, rather than talking to 15 people about how there's something between you and the other person, go talk with the other person to see if there really is something there. Love that person enough. To brave the risk of the conversation. Without wood, fire goes out. Without a gossip, conflict dies down. Proverbs 26.20. Proverbs 11.9. With his mouth, the ungodly destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous are rescued. So much strife exists in churches because person A and person B don't talk about a conflict or don't talk about it with the intention of making peace. 
So then person A goes to person C and D, not for counsel, mind you, about how to healthily engage in that conflict, but to tell them how unreasonable person B is. So now you have four people engaged in a conflict that really there should be two people engaged in. And friends, this does not reflect the character of God. This situation and a thousand like it don't lead anyone to think, oh, wow, now there's a couple of children of God acting and looking like children of God. Bless their hearts. Now, if this is a topic you want to dive further into, you have questions that I've not answered. There are actually two resources I'm going to recommend to you. The first is the book, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. This is an old edition. It's a much better updated Cover on the new edition, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. It's an excellent, excellent resource. And then a smaller one that he co-wrote with Kevin Johnson, Resolving Everyday Conflict. And if you are in the midst of something right now that you're hearing like those resources would be really helpful, I'm going to leave them on the front row up here. I will write my name in the front cover so they make their way back to me at some point in the next five years. But come and take it, please. These are resources. Use them. I've noticed that when we talk about like free books and resources, for some reason our church thinks like it's free. I can't take it. No, it's free. Like come use it, please. They'll be up here on the front row. Let's listen to the words of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It's divine work. It's difficult work, it's discipleship work. Because it's discipleship work, I'm going to close with some questions for you to consider. And they're not going to be comfortable questions. Let me just put that out there. Question number one, are you unreconciled to anyone? If so, will you commit to having a conversation with that person? In addition... Maybe you need to commit to praying about that conversation for a week and perhaps fasting from a meal or two, asking God for grace as you enter that conversation. Ask God for humility that you would seek his glory without your defenses on alert. And if you're a child of God, you have nothing to fear, no one to impress, nothing to prove, and all the acceptance you need entering into that conversation. That's what the gospel has done for you. Question number two, have you been gossiping? If so, Jesus' invitation to you this morning is simple. Repent. There's forgiveness for the gossip if you repent. So turn from it, leave it behind, confess your sin to the person with whom you gossiped. Tell them that you haven't reflected the character of the God who makes peace, but rather the reflected the character of the devil who sows strife and discord. And I know that's a strong statement, but that's what the scriptures say. And then walk once again in the norm of the upside-down kingdom. Be a peacemaker. Question number three. Is there a conversation you've been avoiding? The Spirit's call to you this morning is don't fear. Like seriously, what do you have to fear? If you are a child of God, what do you have to fear? 
What's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Imagine it. Does that in any way affect your standing as a son or daughter of God? No. The worst thing that can happen, having that conversation, cannot affect your standing as a son or daughter of God. So what do you have to fear? Lay down your anxiety, your self-justification, all your arguments and reasons for not having the conversation. Lay it all down at the foot of the cross. Yes, the same cross where the one is hanging, bleeding for your sins so that he might make peace between you and God. That same one who calls you to pursue reconciliation no matter what it costs. So will you? Will we as a church? Question number four. How can you embrace being a peacemaker more broadly? More broadly in your church? More broadly in your neighborhood? More broadly in your city? More broadly in your industry? Pursuing reconciliation between parties takes much wisdom and it's hard work, but it's good work. It's God-honoring work. It's God-imaging work. So it may be that God is calling one or two or three or four individuals in this room to be active about making peace within our cities in ways that some of us aren't even thinking about. Follow the Spirit into that. Number five. We'll talk more about this in two weeks from now, but the final question, who is the Lord inviting you to share the gospel with? This is a costly act of peacemaking. But what is the name right now that God is laying on your heart? And will you, in the coming weeks, be praying about what it might look like to invite them to experience peace with God through the gospel? The peace that Jesus has secured for them. The peace that Jesus has given to you and brought you into. Who is the Lord inviting you to share the gospel with? So here's our big idea. Jesus the King calls you to embrace the abnormal norm of peacemaking in his upside-down kingdom. Final question. Will we? Will we? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word once again. We thank you that it meets us where we live. We thank you for your spirit that brings encouragement and comfort, that brings conviction, brings hope for transformation. Father, I pray for the individuals in this room who are feeling called to a very particular action or conversation. Would you not allow that conviction to end once the service ends, but would you give them the strength and the courage to follow you into what you're calling them into? Father, may we be a peacemaking church, not a peacekeeping or a peacefaking or merely a peaceful church. May we be a peacemaking group of people so that you might be honored and glorified among us. So that we might accurately represent that we are your sons and daughters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.